If you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you have a guest Bible, we're on page 229. We're moving this morning, uh, as we're making our way through this Old Testament book, we're moving this morning uh, from where we were last week, where we encountered Samuel at a very young age. Now we have Samuel at a very old age. And um, we're going to be looking at this entire chapter, which deals with a critical point in the history of Israel where we see them demand for God, well, really for Samuel, to give them a king. Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 8, reading the entire chapter here together. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. For they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officials and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Do as they say, and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Now at first glance, if you're reading from the beginning like we did and you're just looking at the first few verses there, the request of the elders in verse 5, it, it makes some sense, doesn't it? Israel is on the brink of being without a righteous man to judge them. Eli has gotten old, or, uh, Samuel has gotten old. E- Eli's long gone at this point. Samuel has gotten old and his sons, they're corrupt. They can't be trusted. Um, they're accepting bribes. Uh, they're not the type of man that Samuel has been. And, and after all, every other nation around them has a king to rule over them and lead them into battle. So there's some sense to this request. It, it, it's, it's not totally outside of the, the you know, what, would, what you would expect people to want and, and, and what, what we would want, perhaps, if we were in the same situation. Moses himself foresaw this situation back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, uh, 17. 
as Israel is uh, rehearsing the law, as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, Moses himself says in chapter 17, verse 14, you are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. Now, Moses sees the possibility, but does, and he acknowledges that, and, but does he go on to then say, you should not think that. You may be tempted to think that, but you really shouldn't think that. Is that what he says next? Well, no. Moses actually goes on and gives the parameters of how this should take place if it takes place in the life of the nation. Look at verse 15. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses, for the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Keep that in mind, this idea of, of this desire and this motion, this, this trajectory to return back to where they were. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction, that is the law, on a scroll in the presence of the, Le- of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as, as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So you see, it's, it's not as if the law somehow demanded that Israel never have a king or ever request a king, but that they should not ask for one or seek one in a manner after the nations around them. Remember, they're to be distinct from the other nations. They're to be, to be different. But that appears to be exactly what they're demanding in our passage here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. They want, they want Samuel to give them a king that will judge them just like all the other nations have. They want to, to mirror and copy the behaviors and the customs and the, the, the governments of the nations around them. And this is confirmed by God's own assessment in verses 7 through 8. The spirit behind this demand is not for, for just a, a better way for them to be governed or for them to be ruled by a monarchy, but it is rather a fundamental rejection of God and God's ways. They want something else. They want a substitute. They want something that appeals to their own sense of what they think they need, what they think will deliver them, what would suit their purposes as they seek to be their own sort of self-identified people. And right away, you and I as Christians are challenged to assess our own attitudes towards challenging situations, towards our understanding of who we are in the world and, and what we are to be and what we're to be about and how we manage and deal with situations that are beyond our control. Is there something in your life that you turn to as a substitute for God? Think about it for a second. When times get hard, when you're faced with hardship, you're faced with uncertainty, you're tempted to fear or to doubt or to worry, where are you going then? I have to confess that 
in my own life, when I have faced a crisis, whether of my own doing or due to circumstances beyond my control, I have this tendency, and it is a sinful tendency, I'll confess to you, to, to go into what I call fix-it mode, right? I, I, if, if I have a problem, you know, like vanilla ice, I'm going to solve it, right? And so I go into like whatever, whatever the situation is, how can I use, how can I bring reason? How can I bring logic? How can I bring sort of my own sort of understanding of how things work and how to fix things? How can I bring that there to, to fix it? Yeah, I might pray about it. Maybe when I realize that, boy, I can't fix this on my own, and maybe then I'll turn to God. Or I may sort of breathe a prayer, but I, I spend the, the bulk of my energy and my resources and my time and attention and effort into doing it myself. I keep the burden instead of laying my burdens at the feet of God. Listen, it was logical for Israel to want a king, wasn't it? And logic is not inherently bad. I mean, we are created in the image of God as rational beings. God gave us this remarkable God-like ability to reason through things and use logic to find solutions to problems. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But logic was never meant to be a substitute for faith. It was never meant to be the means by which you go about resolving your own problems without appealing to the presence and the power and the wisdom of God. In fact, if we're being honest with ourselves, if you're living the life of faith, faith often calls us to do what is illogical, doesn't it? If you're seeking to follow Jesus and live out, you know, sort of hit, uh, under his rule and his lordship in your life, and you're, you're trying to be faithful to the scriptures, you will end up doing things that run contrary to common sense or popular opinion. Trusting and submitting to God often results in doing things that seem foolish to our friends and our neighbors and our, our family members. Why are you doing that? That makes no sense. Well, I'm, I'm trying to be faithful to God. It is better to do the illogical out of an obedient faith than to do the logical out of a godlessness and lack of faith. Israel's logic told them that they needed something else, that God's way was not good enough. But beneath that sort of logic was a spirit of rebellion and distrust that, it, that insisted really anything but God would be better. <laughs> anything but God. We'll take anything else. Anything else we'll do but him. Last month uh, in August, I forget which uh, message it was, um, I was talking about how as a good father, sometimes God does not give us what we want. Even when we pray in the name of Jesus, and even when we are utterly convinced in God's goodness and in God's power to meet our needs, you know, how many times have you prayed for something, whether it was for God to heal, heal something in your life or to mend a relationship or to remove some hardship or some crisis, and you prayed and prayed and prayed and you genuinely believed, and, and, and you, you hear the voices that say, well, that's not happening because clearly you don't have enough faith. Well, that's, that's not necessarily the case. No good father gives his child everything that he asks for Every time he asks, no matter how much the child loves the father or how much the child believes that the father can and will do good things, sometimes God just permit, permits 
things like illness and disability and hardship and crisis in order to accomplish his will. And that's just the way things are. And that doesn't diminish his goodness or his power. It just shows that his goodness and his power don't always come to bear on the situations that we, that we have in the manner and in the timing that we want them to. But here, in 1 Samuel 8, we see something a little different. What's happening here in this passage? Well, God, once again, he, his, his nature never changes. He's the same, the same good father here that he is elsewhere. God, still the good father, sometimes does give us what we want, even when what we want is ridiculous. Funny how that works, isn't it? Sometimes he lets us have what we ask him for, if for no other reason than to show us the folly of our ways. I have a son who, um, I'm not going to tell you which one, because I don't want to call, call them out. Uh, the one that's in here with us just folded his arms, so he's waiting like, what's coming? It may, yeah, there's a 50-50 chance it's, uh, it's about you. I have a son who, for whatever reason, has always had this bizarre desire to touch hot things. It makes no sense, does it? And he's honest about it. He's like, Dad, I don't know why, but I really want to touch that. Like I'm cooking, so there's like this like liquid lava hot pan of something on the, on the stove, and he's standing there like, you can just see, like he wants to touch it. He knows it's hot. I've told him it's hot a thousand times. I have never let him touch hot things because I know that what's going to happen from it is he's going to burn himself. And yet, there it is. Dad, I want to touch that. And I finally have gotten to the point where I'm like, touch it. Knock yourself out. I have told you what will happen. I know from experience. I have touched hot things. And you, you no matter how much I've told you, you still have this desire to do it. So at this point, I'm going to let you do it and learn for yourself. Now, I'd like to say that as a father, that that is a purely, you know, godly attitude. And I, I am not as holy as God is holy. And there's part of me that just feels like punishing him for being silly. Like, just touch it already. Just touch it and see, you'll get yours. Look, I, I, don't think, I don't think that's in God's heart here. But there is something about God's response that says he will sometimes give us over to the things that we insist upon, right? God, God will give them over to their, their desire for a substitute. He's not doing it in a bitter or resentful way, and I know that because a couple chapters later, in chapter 12, there's this really interesting passage where, um, where the people realize for themselves just how sinful and wicked they have been in their request for a king. It's funny, they're, they're so sure back in chapter 8 of what they need. They're so confident. They're so convinced. And, and it's just a little bit later that they realize, oh my goodness, we were wrong. And as they're talking with Samuel, they suddenly realize we, we have invited, you know, judgment upon ourselves. And they become terrified. And, and there's this, this uh, in verse 20, listen to what they say. Um, well, they, they basically say, uh, in verse 19, it's not going to be on the screen because I told them 20, but I'm going to read 19 and then we'll read 20 and 22. 
They say to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for us or we will die. Did you catch the pronouns there? Pray to the Lord your God. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you feel how the people sense their connection or their relationship or their posture towards, towards Yahweh? At this point, they realize they've so made a mess of things. They've so invited you know, God's judgment and deserving wrath upon themselves in, their, in the form of their wickedness that at this point they're like, hey, he's pray, you need to pray to him. He's not our God. He's your God. Pray to him for us. And listen what Samuel says in verse 20. And this gives us a little bit of insight into the heart of God in his giving them over to their desire. Don't be afraid. He could have just stopped right there. But don't be afraid. He reassured them. Yes, you have certainly done wrong. But make sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart. And don't turn your back on him. Don't go back to worshiping worthless idols that cannot help or rescue you. They are totally useless. Verse 22, the Lord will not abandon his people because that would dishonor his great name for it has pleased him to make you his very own people. Isn't that beautiful? Even though they have rejected him as their king, they've rejected his rule, rejected his ways, they've sought to go their own way, and this is coming out of the period of the judges. That's all that has defined the life of this nation is people, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes to the point where they don't even feel like he's their God anymore. Samuel, that's your God. Will you pray to him? And Samuel's response is, hey, you may have abandoned him, but he has not abandoned you. Yes, he gives you over to your, your false desires, There's something fatherly in that, something he's teaching you through this, something he's going to allow to happen in your life. But it's meant to serve a greater purpose. It's not to be resentful. It's not just to put you in your place and vindicate himself in some sort of sinful human way. No, he is a good father who has delighted and still is delighted in making you his own people. Even in the giving them over to their desires, God remains faithful to his promises, even when his people choose their own way. I hope that's an encouragement to you in your life when you feel like you've made a mess of things, when you feel like you have so rebelled against the rule of God, maybe in the big things or maybe in just the little things, but in some sense you feel a distance from him and you even wonder, am I even a Christian? He hasn't abandoned you. He's still at work. He still takes delight in calling you his son or his daughter. And he will continue to work in your life, if for no other reason than for the the glory of his own reputation and name. But listen, the text is clear. The desire of Israel has, has never been the desires of Yahweh. Right? That their desire all along has been to choose their way over, over his way. Look at verse 8, one, one more time, verse 8 in the first half. Ever since, I brought them out of, ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. So that was their desire, wasn't it? Continuously seeking another, another way than Yahweh. Other gods. 
other way of living, other posture towards the world, other way of identifying who they were. Over and over again, ever since they left Egypt, it was the same thing. But what has God desired all this time? Well, his desire is to have a people who were set apart from all the other peoples. He, would, he wants them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people that belong his own special possession, to be holy as he is holy. Now, whenever I was talking with uh, Dave Newbro at the men's retreat, um, I think it was yesterday morning, having a conversation in, in, during a break about the holiness of God. And, um, you know, we can think about God's holiness in, in a couple different ways. Um, we can think about God's holiness, of course, in relation to his nature, right? So when it comes to his being, so God is, is, is holy in the sense that he is, he is transcendent from all of his creation, right? He is not a part of his creation, you can't think of, of, of all of reality as one continuous thing that God is just a part of. No, God stands apart from created reality. There was a, uh, the other night in, our, um, in my uh, Wednesday night small group, I get the junior high boys, so feel free to pray for me every Wednesday night from 7 to 8 p.m. I, get, uh, I had 11 junior high boys the other night. Wow. Um, but listen, a quick word about our small groups on Wednesday nights. You've heard us mention that we're doing this on Wednesday nights. We had 27 students this last Wednesday night. That is amazing. And the Lord is working there, and we, I want to acknowledge what the Lord is doing. So I, I, had, I have this small group, the junior high boys. Kevin Brewer and I are the, the two leaders. And, um, you know, we're dealing with, you know, how do you, um, do you, is there something in your life that you have a question about that you you know, don't have an answer for. There's something about the faith, there's something about life that you just, you just have always wondered about something. And several of the boys said the same thing. They said, basically, how, how has God, like, always been? Right? Because we, we think, you know, in a linear way, there's a distinct beginning to everything, and, and things have an end, and we can chart it on a, on a line, right, from, that, that starts here and ends there. Well, how is there, before the line begins for all of creation, how was there God before that from eternity past? Our, our finite minds cannot grasp that. And yet, that's the assertion of the scriptures. That in the beginning, God. He pre-exists all else and everything depends upon him. He is holy at the level of his nature. That he is not continuous with his creation. All the other pagan gods were. Every one of those false gods that Israel was tempted to worship were a part of creation. And therefore, if you manipulate the stuff of creation, then somehow you can manipulate them in the invisible world. Idolatry. Paganism. Yahweh is holy. He is distinct from his creation. But there's another way to think about his holiness, and that is with regard to his character. It's not just a, a, an, an issue pertaining to his being, but an issue pertaining to his conduct. Yahweh is his holiness is a moral, ethical reality. Every concept of right and wrong and good and evil find their origin and their ground in him. He is the standard. He is the rule that determines what is good and what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. He is the Holy One. And a person, a place, a thing, can only find holiness in association with, in a relationship to him.
Now, Israel's aversion to God's rule was matched only by their aversion to God's holiness. (laughs) And the implications that it had on their lives. And those two things always go hand hand in hand. God's rule and God's holiness. Who he is, what he does, and by extension, who we are and what we do. You know, the, the New Testament echoes sort of the, the things that we see in the Old Testament regarding God's expectation that his people be holy as he is holy. God, uh, Jesus himself repeated this. We see it in the writings of Paul, or uh, Peter uh, in particular. Um, this, this exhortation to the Christian to be holy, and sometimes the word is, there is perfect. Don't get lost in the weeds of that word. But biblically, in a biblical sense, be perfect as God is holy or as God is perfect. The New Testament echoes the old. It's the same desire of God. That doesn't mean that you and I, when we come to Christ, become transcendent like God. That can't be what it means. You're never going to be like God that way. And at the, you know, you're never going to become something different than what you are in that regard. And yet, when we come to Christ and we are born again by his spirit, something does happen in, the, in our nature. Something does happen deep inside of of us as persons. It's not just some sort of exterior reality or some sort of relational change of status. Something actually comes into the very heart of who we are and, and does something there from the inside out. And what happens as a result of that? It impacts our conduct. It impacts the way we think. It impacts our perspectives. It impacts our attitudes and our desires. The the work he does on the inside issues forth in fruit. Something happens on the outside. Transformation causes a a change in behavior. And there should be, by necessity, a moral, ethical difference between the Christian and the world. To be drawn into abiding intimacy with, with God and allowing that intimacy to transform our lives, that is the very purpose of the cross and of the empty tomb and of the ascension, and of the coming of the Spirit. Holiness is not some sort of external thing to to the the plan of salvation. It is the very meat and potatoes of it. It is its very essence to to have God dwell in me and to reshape who I am that I might become more like Christ. And I wonder, how different is your life or my life from the lives of those around us? How distinct are we? How unique are we? If you put us in a lineup, you know, like, like, the, like at the police station, right? The, the lineup and the person's trying to identify who's who. If there's somehow a lineup of your life, the fruit of your life, and you're lined up with people from the world, could the world tell anything different between you and the ones next to you? What is your main preoccupation Is it to conform to the behavior and the customs of this world? Or is it to let God transform you into a new person? To be set apart completely unto him and to his rule. And to be fully yielded to a sanctifying work in your heart. If that is your commitment, well, your life should reflect that. That's not a guilt trip, friends. I'm not up here telling what you should and shouldn't do. And too much of holiness has been centered on the do's and the don'ts. That's not my heart here at all. I'm saying this is cause and effect. 
If you are born again and you are filled with the Spirit, that will change your life. And that can be, and the absence of the transformation can be a wake-up call to, to your heart. But the presence of the transformation can be a great source of comfort and security. Because when you start to see the fruit of your own life and you realize, wow, I am a different person than I was before. I really am a child of God. But if we're not careful, there will be a temptation for anyone who has experienced the grace of God to desire the way things were before. Not everything, right? We, we didn't like living under condemnation, did we? We didn't like the idea that we were guilty before a holy God. And so we love the idea that we are forgiven, that we're accepted. We love the idea that we have a bright future, one that, is, that we can have hope in, a hope for eternity. Like those things about being a Christian are great. But man, when we're faced with the, the demands of discipleship, when we're faced with the cost of being set apart unto God, when we feel the discomfort of the Holy Spirit's work in reforming our thinking and in our behavior, man, there are times to be tempted to miss and desire the good old days. It, there, there are moments in the Christian life where we can see what's going on in the world around us and feel like, man, it would kind of be nice if, if I didn't have the things I'm dealing with and I had what that, what that person's dealing with, or I get to do what that person gets to do. We see this in Israel. That's what's going on here. They want the distinction of being God's chosen people without its demands. And when times got hard, ever since God delivered them by his mighty hand under Pharaoh's tyranny, when times got hard, what did they say? Do you remember? Man, being a slave in Egypt was better than this. It's, a, it's laughable, isn't it? We read that and we're like, what were they thinking? Who in their right minds, after being delivered under the yoke of slavery, would ever think going back to that is better than where they are now? Listen, that is not a problem up here, is it? That is a problem right here. Even after Samuel's warning there, I read the whole thing, verses 11 through 17 there. It was the longest chunk of the, of the reading. And you may, as you were listening to it, it may have been like, man, that's a lot of like, tedious kind of detail types of things. You probably could have summarized that, Pastor Sean, and I could have. But I wanted to read. I wanted you to feel Samuel wants that God through Samuel wants the people to be very clear. This is the implication of what you're asking for. This is what is going to happen. You cannot say that you didn't know what was coming. You cannot say that you didn't have the information because I gave it to you. And yet, after hearing everything that God through Samuel told them was going to happen, what, what did they do? They still wanted it. Which tells me they know the truth. They know truth from God, but they don't love God's truth. They know it, but they don't embrace it. They don't love it. And the choice that lies before you and, and me as the people of God today is whether or not we will love the truth and the rule and the holiness of God in our lives. And I don't mean experience the, the, you know, the emotions of love. 
right? There will be times in your duty to Christ where you will not feel the, you know, the, the, the warm fuzzies of love. I'm not talking about experience the emotions of love. I'm talking about making the choice to love. You hear and are exposed to the truth, and, and yet do you embrace it? Do you accept it? Do you desire it? Do you cherish it? Will you allow it to, to impact your life and, and, and let it to descend from the mind down into the heart? Everyone wants to know God's will, don't they? Like We all want to know God's will. We want to know what God wants us to go do. We want to know those things. And we get frustrated when, when we don't know it. And we wonder why God won't tell me. God, I have this important decision. I need to know if I should do X or Y or Z. Why aren't you telling me what to do? We want to know the facts. We want, to know, we want the info. We want the data. We want, to, we want the details. But maybe God knows that our hearts aren't open to it. <laughs> Sounds kind of like last week, doesn't it? Remember how we started that chapter 3 passage where it said, in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare. It was uncommon for there to be visions. Why? Because the people had closed themselves off to it at the level of the heart. It said, even if God had spoken, who was listening? Who would have obeyed it? Who would have cared? The truth of God must do more than just occupy the mind. It must take root deep into the heart. And it can't do that if the soil of the heart is made of that stubborn stuff. I once thought I was called to be a missionary, and I may have shared this in some form or fashion, maybe multiple times over the almost 10 years we've been together. So if this is old news to you, then, um, you know, hang in there, only take a a moment. I once thought I was called to be a missionary. I was going through a season of life as a young Christian Bible college student trying to sort through, you know, the, the particulars of God's will for me. I want to know his plan. I want to know what classes I should be taking because I want to know what degree I needed to pursue. So I knew what, you know, after college job or ministry God was calling me to, and I wanted to know the details and the specifics, and God was working on my heart and bringing me to a place of deeper understanding, deeper maturity of the things of God, and, and eventually got to the point where I realized I think what I'm wrestling with is whether I should be a missionary or not. And I grappled with this idea of leaving my family behind and going to some place on the other side of the world for forever, perhaps. And I grappled with that for, for months, this, this idea that God was calling me to do this thing. And I finally got to the point in the, the summer between my sophomore and, and junior years where I, I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll leave everything behind. I will, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do anything, God. You just tell me when and where, and I will be there. But he never, he never did. He never did send me to another side of the world. Not because I wasn't open to it, because I was. But he never did. And instead... He sent me in an an entirely different direction, resulting in me ultimately becoming the one thing I said I would never be. It's funny how that works, isn't it? 
What, am I, what was I to take away from that, by the way? Was God just joking with me? Was it a, was he, was it a tease? Was I just completely misunderstanding everything? Completely? I don't think so. As I reflected on this, that process and the results of it and the implications of it over the years, I have come to realize that God wasn't after my availability to go to a certain place and to do a certain thing. God was after my willingness to belong completely to him. Friends, that is his primary concern. The what and the where matter, but those are secondary in nature. Honestly, I think he wants us to get to the point where the, the what and the where doesn't even matter anymore to us. God, if, if your desire for me and my consecration to you is to remain right here in Elizabeth City and, and do this particular ministry or that particular outreach or whatever, if that is truly your will, I'm surrendered to it because I'm surrendered to you. But if it's to pack my bags and say goodbye to everything I know and take my family, or I'm just speaking hypothetical me, this is not me saying that we're going somewhere. That always happens when I talk like this. I'm not saying that. This is a hypothetical me. Take my family and, and go to China. Ugh. <laughs> Someone said, ugh. <laughs> or Africa or South America, Brazil, where, wherever it is. The best place in the world, the worst place in the world. It doesn't matter because I'm sold out and I'm yielded entirely to him. I belong to him. I'm his All of my life belongs to the Lord. That's his will for you. That's his will. That's all he ever really wants from any of us. Yes, the particulars from person to person will vary, but the underlying principle is the exact same. God's desire from Genesis to Revelation, and it's repeated over and over and over again, is what? That they will be my people and that I would be their God. You hear the intimacy in that? The the sense of belongingness in that? That's his heart's desire, is for people to just belong to him. Not just citizens of a kingdom that he gets to rule over and tell what to do all the time, but a people set apart at the level of the heart who are uniquely and wholly his, who are his bride that he could join himself to forever. What will it take in your life for God's desire to be your desire. Where what you want out of this thing called, called being a Christian is the exact thing that God wants out of this thing called being a Christian. Well, it, it'll take nothing short of a work of the Holy Spirit, I can assure you. None of, none of us here will naturally come to desire the things of God on our own. Because on our own, we desire the opposite, don't we? We're just like Israel. We want anything but God. We want anything but his rule. We, are, we have an aversion to his holiness. We don't want to be set apart. We want to be like everyone else because that's what we know. That's what we're comfortable with. That's where we think that we will find life and identity and meaning and purpose. And, 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 and that's what will fulfill the desires of my heart. If I can just have what's in my heart, then I will be happy. Well, what if what's in your heart doesn't match what God has said is best for your life. And what will bring you to where you desire what he wants and not what you want? Nothing short of a supernatural work of grace by the Holy Spirit of God can bring you to that point. 
He alone can do what needs to be done, that you and I might love the Lord our God with all of our heart, in all of our soul, in all of our mind, in all of our strength. That we might desire and surrender to God's rule. That we might desire and pursue his holiness, that holiness without which no man may see the Lord. The cry of Israel's greatest prophets was for what? What was the cry? For a new heart. And the work of God through his Son and by his Spirit is to deliver precisely that. So will we be a people who seek him and belong to him? and live lives set apart unto him, all by a work of his grace that comes to you through faith. So friends, I'm really just inviting you to put your faith in God, (laughs) to not work it all out on your own, to come up with your own logical answer to your problems, your solutions to fix things. No, present it to him. Trust in him, in his goodness, and in his power, his working, and accept and embrace. Choose to receive for your life his truth and his holiness and his rule. And he'll do a work in your heart that will make you something that you're not now. And that will be better than you were before. As Pastor Jeff comes up, we're going to pray and then have a closing song. Join me, if you would, in prayer. Lord, we, we thank you for these, these promises that even though we, we make a mess of things and perhaps all too often choose our way over your way, for even when we don't even desire to do what is right, it's one thing to desire to do what is right and feel like we don't have the power to do it. It's another thing to just not even desire it at all. And sometimes that's me. Sometimes I don't even desire to do what is right. And I feel like I've made such a mess of things. There's no possible way that you would want anything to do with me. And yet, you take delight in calling me your son. Lord, I pray that we would all not only know, but live into the joy and the freedom and the peace and the life of sonship. To be sons and daughters by grace through faith. And to become more like you and less like ourselves as you come to abide in us and dwell in us and transform us from the inside out. Lord, have your way in my heart. Renew a right spirit in me that I might be the man and the pastor, and the father, and the husband, and the friend, and the neighbor, the citizen that you've called me to be. Do these things, we pray, for your great name's sake. Through the power of the name of Jesus in the, in the, in the person of the Spirit. Amen.